you. Um, I want to start by just, just being honest with you. Fashion sense has always been a struggle for me. Um, I would appreciate no one saying amen to that, <clears throat> but, but it has. And I think back to middle school and high school, and I changed the way I, I dressed and a lot of different things about myself a lot of different times. And it was never about trying to be trendy. It was never about trying to be on any kind of cutting edge of fashion. I, I dressed the way I dressed and then changed the way I dressed several times over for one specific reason. And then um, I, I changed my hairstyle again and again for really one specific reason. And that one specific reason was to attract girls. Um, there, there was no other way to describe what I was trying to accomplish. Um, and the reason I kept having to do it because it wasn't working. And so... One of the problems was I tried so hard sometimes that I ended up looking ridiculous, and rather than attract girls, it likely served to repel them. It probably didn't help my cause that, that my parents refused to spend a ridiculous amount of money on all of the, the clothes and the shoes and things that were really uh, in back then, and, uh, and the, at the time, I remember thinking, like, well, that's not fair. All my friends have the expensive stuff. Now I'm extremely grateful for that, and I know that our, our students are in the room this morning um, sitting with their dads for Father's Day instead of in their own service. And so hear that clearly. If your parents say no to something, someday you'll probably be thankful for it. Um, that's, just, that's just the truth. Uh, the, the truth is a lot of the things that I wanted, if my parents had bought it for me then, I would need to still be wearing it today in order for it to have gotten its value out of it. And that's a long time to wear what was popular in 1995. So um, just trust me on that, teenagers in the room. But I'm thankful to my parents for not doing that. I also don't think they necessarily wanted me to attract girls, but I don't think that was their reasoning either. But I was just kind of strange when it came to fashion. I'd get it in my head that something looked cool or that something would be appealing to the opposite sex, and so I would take it to a weird level. Um, I wanted to wear visors for a while, and some of you would say, well, visors were never in. Well, I thought they were. I wanted a visor, but I didn't want to go buy one, and so rather than going to buy a visor... I took some old hats I had, and I cut the tops off them. Um, I know, right? You're just learning a whole other side of me here. Um, and so I'd, I'd pop these hats on with no, no top on them, and I'd say, look, I got a visor. And to me, it was also a, a conversation piece. Like, somebody's going to want to talk about this. Nobody wanted to talk about it, uh, at least not to me, more like about me. I got a lot of weird looks for that. I think that those visors served as more of a repellent. Um, I still today probably sometimes have that issue where I think something looks cool and it probably doesn't. The only difference is now I'm old enough not to care. And so that's actually a good place to find yourself uh, for sure. But here's my point. Here's where we're going as we finish up our series today. There are things about us, some that we control, some that we don't, that will serve to attract or repel people. And when it comes to our faith, when it comes to church, when it comes to Jesus, the soundtrack of our life, and the collective soundtrack of our congregation, our family of believers, it will serve to attract or repel people. The way we live, the words we speak, the way we treat one another, the way we love one another, and the way that we don't love one another, all of these things and more work together to sing a song, our soundtrack. And that's literally what we've been talking about this whole series. And that song, both on a personal and congregational level, it can repel or attract you know how this works as far as actual music goes. If you turn on the radio in your car and you're driving down the road, there are different levels of song. There's kind of the middle ground where you have bearable songs, tolerable songs. You know, I can fight through this song because the next one might be okay. Or 
Well, this is a classic, and yeah, I've heard it a hundred times, but I, I can listen to it one more time. It's not worth changing the station. But then you have the far ends of the radio spectrum. There's the songs that you can't help but bust a move to. Like, you can't help but just break it down even while you're driving. You're dancing, you're singing, and some of you are going, well, I've never done that. Listen, everybody has at least a song. And if you don't, we'll find one for you that, that just makes you move. Like, you can't sit still. On the other end of that, there's the song that you only need to hear three notes of before you throw your hand at the tuner to get that song off of your radio. It's like the old game show, Name That Tune, except instead of I can name that song in three notes, it's I can be annoyed by that song in three notes. But let's be real this morning. Let's be completely honest. Some of us from time to time wonder why our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, or even our family members have no interest in church or God or anything spiritual. We sit back and we wonder why. And I think we need to admit that sometimes it's possible that part of the reason is that the song that our lives sing serves to repel them more than attract them to God. You see, if you're a constantly negative person, why would someone believe you when you talk about the hope you have in Jesus? It doesn't add up. They're going to change the station because the song doesn't make sense. If you're a consistently mean or rude person, why would anyone want to hear you talk about how God is love? It's not going to measure up. They're not going to understand, and they're going to change the station. If you consistently complain about your church, why would anyone ever want to come with you? It doesn't add up. And yet sometimes we sit back and we think, I wonder why they won't come to church with me. Or I wonder if they'll ever find God. They just don't seem interested. And we, we don't always consider that maybe, it's not necessarily the case, but maybe we've played a role in it. So how do we attract instead of repel? I never figured it out with girls very well, but I, we could probably figure it out when it comes to attracting people to Jesus. And so to do that, what I want to do is I want us to start by studying one particular passage of Scripture, and it's found in the book of Titus. And so it's, in your, it's in the, on the insert in your bulletin if you want to follow along. It'll also be on the screen, or you can open your Bible if you brought it with you. But it's possible that you haven't done a lot of reading in the book of Titus. And so I want to give you just a little bit of background on this book. Titus, the book, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Titus. Now, Titus himself uh, is mentioned several times in, different, uh, uh, in some different letters that Paul wrote to different people and to churches. He's not mentioned as much as someone like Timothy, um, but it's clear that Titus traveled with Paul and traveled for Paul uh, at different times. Based on the references in those other writings, we can make the assumption that Titus was pretty well-versed in dealing with difficult situations. In fact, just to give you a good example of that, uh, Titus was a Gentile. He was not of Jewish descent. And he went with Paul to the Jerusalem conference where the church leaders of the time were debating the issues of what requirements there should be for Gentiles, those not of Jewish descent, to gain admission to the church. So Jewish boys had grown up in the church. They had gone through certain rituals, certain things from a historical standpoint, certain things that were traditions for them. The Gentiles were going to get to join the church. Did they have to do anything in order to gain admission? And so that's what this was all about. And some scholars point to Titus as the embodiment of that final agreement, which decided, among other things, that circumcision would not be required for Gentiles to join the church. So I'm sure this was a contentious conversation, and Titus was there. He was present for this. Now, based on the context of the letter that we have in Scripture, we can assume at the point of Paul's writing here that Titus is serving churches on the island of Crete. 
And it's likely that these are fairly new churches set up by Paul on a previous trip. It's not 100% clear, but it's entirely possible that what we have here is Titus and Paul go to Crete, set up some churches. Paul moves on, as Paul did a ton of traveling, and left Titus behind to kind of help get the church going. So I really recommend this book if you haven't had a chance to read through it. It's, it's pretty straightforward. There's a lot of instruction here, advice that Paul is giving to Titus. He covers issues like appointing proper leaders in the church and how different people in different situations need to act and to live, and he really stresses the importance of living properly. And so I want us to look closely at just a few verses here and see what we can glean from it. In Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. This is what Paul writes. In the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely, and you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. Then those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. Now, what's interesting is those verses actually fit extremely well with what we talked about last Sunday. This idea that the way that you live, what you do, it should reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. It's not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. It's backing up your teaching with a life that reflects belief in that same teaching. And it's tempting for us to say, well, I, I wouldn't just do one thing or say one thing and do another. I, I wouldn't do that. But the truth is a lot of us do that an awful lot because we say we need to love one another, but we don't always love one another. And we say we need to help the poor, but we don't always help the poor. And we say we need to serve with our time and our talents, but we aren't always willing to do that. We're often too busy to follow through. And so what Paul is saying to Titus here is you, Titus, need to lead by example with your life and show these people that what you teach and how you live have to match up. Because if that's not the case, why would anyone care? Why would anyone listen to what you have to say? Why would anyone want to know more or hear more or experience more? It sounds simple, but a lot of us struggle with this a lot of the time. We know what we're supposed to do. We know the right things to say. We'll tell other people that, but when it comes to following through, to back that up by living it, we don't always do it. And to those who don't know God, those who haven't yet met Jesus, it's confusing if we say one thing, but our lives don't reflect it. It's off-putting, and it can repel them. Paul continues in verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God, while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. You see, to me, this little section here, it points to a twofold reason for living the way that God has called and commanded us to live. Two reasons that it's important for us to live right. Now, verse 14 shows us the first and foremost reason that Jesus died for us to free us from every sin, to cleanse us, to make us his own. That's a good enough reason to live the way he's called us to live as a response to his grace, his gift to us. But the other reason is important. And it's this, because how you live in response to that grace and whether or not your life matches up with the calls and commands of God found in Scripture speaks loudly a message to the world around you, a statement to the world around you about whether following God is worth it 
and about whether following God is something those who say they follow God actually do. See, it comes down to a very important word, and that word is authenticity. Authenticity. You see, no one is suggesting that you need to be perfect to follow God. That's simply not possible. But if we claim to follow Christ, and there's much about our lives that don't point to us following Christ, our claiming of Christ appears inauthentic. I could tell you that I'm the president of the United States of America. It would not take you very long to see that that is an inauthentic claim. Follow me for 30 seconds, you'll realize that's not the case. I promise there are not secret service agents in the wings. Therefore, I am not the president. And there are times where we say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but it doesn't take very long for people to say, but your life doesn't reflect, it doesn't really look like you are, and your claim of Christ appears inauthentic. On the other hand, if you claim to follow Christ and your life isn't perfect, but it's clear that you're trying, striving, even claiming and admitting your struggles and mistakes, then your claiming of Jesus Christ as your Savior appears much more authentic. And in that, stands to be more appealing to someone far from God. Not because you've got it figured out, not because you have all the answers, not because your life was easier because you're following Jesus, but because authenticity tends to sing a much more appealing song than being inauthentic. It's the difference between singing walk this way and leaving it at that and singing walk this way while actually walking this way. Paul finishes this section by speaking directly to Titus in verse 15. He said, you must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. You have the authority to correct them when necessary, so don't let anyone disregard what you say. And he closes this with a firm, this matters. To me, that's what I read here. This is important. This is not throwaway teaching. Honestly, some of us, sometimes we hear a message or you know, we'll, we'll download a sermon on a podcast or watch a live stream of a church or even come to a church service and we, we hear a message and we say, well, that was okay back to real life, and we sometimes throw away that moment, that teaching. God puts opportunities in front of us to teach and to learn, and sometimes we kind of just throw those away, and we miss them. And I believe what Paul is saying here is, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm writing you this letter, and all of it's important, but don't let anyone disregard this. If they aren't doing it right, correct it, because it's too important. Your teaching and how you live, they need to measure up. They need to reflect the same thing. And we should get that because it's the absolute truth. If our lives could attract or repel somebody, if our lives could make a difference in whether somebody is interested or completely disinterested in a relationship with God in knowing what Jesus did for them, if I could have a say in that, then I really want my life to fall on the side of attraction, not repel them. And if that's what I want and that's what we should want, then what can I do better? to make sure that I'm striving to live as God has called me to live, both because of the effect it could have on another person and absolutely because living right is the right response to what God did for us through Jesus on the cross. So how do we make sure that we're more likely to attract than repel? What are some steps we can take? What are some signs we can watch for? Because here's the problem. A lot of us go through stretches of time where we're really not attracting people to Christ. And we don't even realize it. A lot of us get into a rut or we act a certain way or we say certain things and, and it just becomes a part of who we are and we don't even realize that those things might serve to turn people off to the idea of God. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time together today is focus on two different, contrasting, uh, two different sets of contrasting characteristics 
that if, if we could get on the right side of these, would go a long way towards singing a better song to the world around us. The first one is this. It's joyfulness versus joylessness. Now, joy is tricky for us sometimes because we confuse it with happiness. We say, well, yeah, I'm joyful. Look, I'm smiling, so I must be joyful. Listen, I can fake a smile, and so can you. Being joyful does not mean being happy. Although it's confusing if you begin to look at definitions, one of the definitions of joy uh, from Webster's Dictionary reads like this, the emotion evoked by well-being, or the emotion evoked by success or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. And you and I might, might read something like that, might hear that and say, well, see, it equates with happiness in this life because, you know, the prospect of possessing what one desires, you know, if I, if I want stuff and I get stuff, then I'm happy. So, yeah, it's the same thing as happiness. But I would suggest if what you desire is eternity with God and you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, been baptized into Him, and you're striving to live for Him, I would suggest suggest that this life itself is probably not going to make you super happy all the time. But because you have that hope of heaven, that which you desire, as the definition said, you can still have joy. That because you see all of this life as temporary and know that there's more to come, a better place, a perfect place, when you see it that way, walking through this life, even when it's not happy, walking through this life with joy should be much easier. First Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse 6, says this, So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. And though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. You see, followers of Jesus should be much more known for our joy, not because our lives are without trouble, but because our ultimate hope, the source of that joy, is found in a Savior who died for us in a future place with no pain, no sorrow, no hurt. And yet a lot of us who would claim Christ as our Savior are better known for our joylessness for our complaining, for treating others harshly. Some of us have given Christians a reputation that is less like Jesus and more like Grumpy Cat. <laughs> yes, if you haven't heard of Grumpy Cat, enjoy this with me for just a moment. Of course, it does get better when you add words. So many reasons to be grumpy, so little time. And it wouldn't be as funny without one more. I had fun once. It was awful. And we can laugh at those. We can say, well, that's ridiculous. Like, cats, cats usually seem kind of carefree and do whatever they want to do, but that's how some of us look. I hate, to, I hate to tell you that. That's how some of us look. That's how some of us look when we go to church. That's how some of us look when we're asked to serve. That's how some of us look when we're asked to give. That's how some of us look when the seat we normally sit in is filled here in the auditorium. We have to sit somewhere else. Where's the joy? In that. You see, here's what I would suggest. I would suggest that even the most joyful among us is not as joyful as they should be, which means the rest of us have a lot farther distance to travel on this. We have to find that joyfulness that comes from the hope of eternity, from a God who loves us and a Savior who died for us, and allow that to be displayed in our lives. 
to do that, that's going to take some intentionality on our part to say, when I face trouble, I'm not going to focus on the trouble, I'm going to focus on Jesus. When I have struggles, I'm not going to focus on the struggle, I'm going to focus on Jesus. If we can get to the point where we're seeing beyond just this life, I believe then we can find that level of joy because troubles and struggles are temporary. Temporary Eternity with Jesus is just that, eternity. But we get so caught up in this life because this is where we live and, live and this is what we experience and, and the hurts are here and now and I get that. But knowing that there is something beyond this, that should put a smile on your face and joy in your heart. Second Corinthians chapter 4. I love these verses here. It says, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Whatever's causing the grumpy cat face on you is temporary. It's a part of this life. And yet if you know Jesus as your Savior, you have the greatest source of joy that there could ever be. James chapter 1, verse 2, and then also verse 12. says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. You see, this life won't always be easy. It's not supposed to be. But in light of what God did for us through Jesus Christ, and in light of what that means for us for eternity, I think we have a responsibility to seek joy in every moment and to allow that joy to spill out of us to others. If we're going to be Jesus followers, we should be known more for our joyfulness than our joylessness. Now, the second set of these piggybacks off of that. It's maturity versus immaturity. Because sometimes the temptation when we struggle to be joyful, when we struggle with complaining, when, when we're maybe rude sometimes to people, when, when those are our struggles, when we're critical, when we're negative, sometimes our tendency is to blame those parts of us as, on our personality. And we say, well, that's just who I am. I'm, just, I'm kind of a negative person. There's nothing I can do about that. And we say, well, why should I have to change who I am? That's just me. I know I'm sometimes negative, but I can get past that. You know, I'm, just, I'm just kind of a negative person sometimes. And we might even try to spiritualize it and say, well, God would want me to be me, and that's just who I am. I get that. We all have different personalities, and we all probably even have some sort of a default for our personality. You know, this person defaults to happy. You might default to sad or to negative or to critical. But I also believe that we're all called and equipped to live rightly for God, and the fruit of the Spirit, the result of God in us, the result of living for Him, it's the same for every Christian. It's found in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, it says this, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. And it's likely that, that, that you've heard that or read that before, or maybe if you grew up in the church, it's possible you even memorized those at some point. And I think we tend to think, well, yeah, those are things I'm supposed to strive for. I'm supposed to, to, to be loving and I'm supposed to shoot for joy and peace and patience in my life. But that's not really what it says here. It says the Holy Spirit produces these things. If you're a Jesus follower, if you've accepted him and received the gift of the Holy Spirit, these are things 
produced in you. Produced in you. You can't claim that, that patience is impossible for you. If the Holy Spirit is in you, it can make it happen. You can't claim that you can't muster up joyfulness because if the Holy Spirit is in you, the Holy Spirit can produce that in you because nothing is impossible for God. And, you know, we say, well, I just can't be joyful. Wrong. <laughs> you can be. That scripture doesn't say that the Holy Spirit produces those things unless they don't match up with our personality. In fact, I would suggest that the Holy Spirit can and does produce those things in us in spite of our personality, which in some cases should make it all the more miraculous and obvious that God is in that, that that person has the Holy Spirit in them. Say, listen, I I know that person. For them to, to be producing joy in this moment, to see love in that person, God must have really been at work in them. See, the Holy Spirit produces these things, and we can either embrace that or, and let the Spirit lead, or we can claim it's just not us and be who we think we are instead of who God has called us to be. Because here's what I believe, and I don't think we talk about this nearly enough. I think we try to do way too much of this on our own. We put so much on ourselves, and yeah, God calls us to do certain things that, that we are absolutely responsible for, but I also believe that God sent us His Holy Spirit to be a presence in our lives that helps, that transforms us, that transforms every personality into the image of Christ, and if we'll let it into the very best version of ourselves, the version best equipped to do what God has called us to do, and sometimes we go, well, I just can't be joyful, I just can't do this, I just, there are certain people I just can't show love to. Yeah, you might not be able to, but the Holy Spirit can in and through you, because nothing is impossible for God. You see, here's the bottom line for this entire series. We need to stop acting like the way we live doesn't matter. We need to stop pretending that because at some point we've said we accepted Christ as our Savior, that, that what our lives look like after that point don't matter. And I know that a lot of us don't act that way, but most of us do at least sometimes. The truth is every moment of every day, especially every interaction with other people, it all sings a song. It all creates a soundtrack. And it needs to be a soundtrack of love and of truth. It needs to point people to Jesus. And to do that, I believe it's going to require us to rely on God, to lean on His Holy Spirit in order to display the joy that knowing Him brings, the joy that the hope He gives brings, even when life is difficult, even when it's tough to be joyful. And it'll be difficult. It may even seem impossible sometimes. This life can be crazy good and it can be crazy bad, and yet through it all, we can have joy because of what God did for us through Jesus Christ, because of the hope we have of eternity. And the truth is, when a lost world that severely lacks hope sees that hope in us, when they see the joy that that hope gives us, I believe with all my heart they'll want to know more about where that joy comes from. But if we don't ever show them that we have that hope, if that doesn't show up in the way that we live, how would they ever realize that they could have that same hope? You see, if it's on display in your life, if those fruits of the Spirit are on display in your life, I believe that people want to know, okay, you're kind of weird. Why is that? And maybe we get an opportunity to talk to them about Jesus, to tell them what God has done for them, 
And maybe they listen, not because we have all the answers, not because we have it all figured out, but because we have the source of true hope and true joy, Jesus Christ, our Savior. I want to finish up with some of Paul's words written to the church of Philippi in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. He wrote this, he said, I pray that your love will overflow more and more, and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. You see, the way you and I live, if we live like Jesus, if we live like we've been called to, it will bring much glory and praise to God. And I believe that more will come to know him if our lives reflect him. More will want to come to know him if our lives reflect him. If the soundtrack of our lives sings a song of love, a song of truth, and a song of joy in response to what he's done for us. If it doesn't, I don't think we have the right to sit back and be surprised that more people aren't interested in God. If it doesn't, I don't think we have the right to sit back and wonder why more people don't come to church. We need to be people who are willing to look at ourselves and say, what could I differently. Instead of saying, I wonder why they won't come. Okay, is there something in me that is sending them away? Is there something in me that is not drawing them toward Christ, but is instead repelling them? And be willing to examine ourselves and say, I need to change. And in those moments, be willing to rely on the Holy Spirit to help you make those changes that might seem impossible. I want to finish by asking you the same question and asking you to ask yourself the same question that we asked at the very beginning of the series. What song is your life singing? The people that are around you every single day and the people who meet you for the first time, what's the song that they hear? Does that song point them to the God you serve or somewhere else? Let's pray. God, thank you for continuing to challenge us with your word. God, help us to have the strength that it takes to be willing to look inside ourselves regularly, examine ourselves regularly, and be willing to admit that we don't have it all figured out yet. God, help us to never be content with where we are in our relationship with you. God, God until, until the whole world knows you, there is someone that needs to hear the song of our life that points to you. So God, if there are changes we need to make in our lives, help us to do so. Help us to rely on your Holy Spirit in those moments. If we're negative, help us to work on that. If we complain too much, help us to work on that. If we lack joy, help us to find that joy. And help us to remember that we represent you as we walk this earth. Help us to take that seriously and strive to look as much like your son Jesus as possible. It's in his name we pray. Amen.